But as we get started, I want to ask us to think about something together. Because I think we would all agree that we live in a world that is significantly shaped by what are known as social media influencers. They undeniably affect things like what we wear, what we purchase, even how we vote. Massive amounts of people follow just a few influencers. In fact, this will blow your mind. If you take just the top five social media influencers in America alone, their combined following is 2.2 billion people. To, to put that in perspective, that's almost 25% of the world's population. Just five social media influencers. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of overlap in those numbers, but the point is you can clearly see how powerful one person's influence can be, especially in our world today. I bring that up because this issue of influence is significant even within the early church. In fact, that's Paul's primary concern as he writes this letter to Timothy. The, the influence of just a few false teachers has infiltrated the Ephesian church. And you may remember, Paul warned the church leaders that this could in fact happen. During one of his missionary journeys, on his way back to Jerusalem, he asked to eat, meet with the elders from Ephesus at Miletus. Y'all remember that? We see it in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 28. And this is what he tells them. Speaking to the elders, Paul says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. So Paul warned them and even suggested that perhaps some of these false teachers would even arise from within the church leadership. Men appointed to be shepherds would become savage wolves. As you can imagine, this is an alarming announcement, isn't it? And it's why I think Paul writes to Timothy with such a sense of urgency. Because it appears that Paul's concern that he mentioned back in Miletus has actually come to pass. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that warning that Paul gave to the elders in Miletus applies directly to you and I today. I want to tell you with undeniable conviction that false teachers have infiltrated the American church. And their influence is much greater than any of us could imagine. Because not unlike the social media influencers of today, they have a lot of platforms in which they can, to use Paul's words, draw away the disciples 
after them because it's all about how many followers you have. And so what Paul has to say to this Ephesian church, we need to grasp with utmost conviction that it applies directly to us. The order, the instruction that he provides to this church for their protection is equally as relevant to this church today. As Paul will later say in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, I am writing you these instructions, Timothy, so that, here's his purpose, if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. So before we begin our series on this important walk through this letter, let's Offer this time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we want to take this seriously. In fact, we want to receive this letter to Timothy as if it were written to us. Because we believe that the words that you spoke to that Ephesian church are equally as relevant in our day to this church family. So, Father, would you help us take them to heart personally and corporately? Would you shape our lives individually, but also in the fellowship of how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? We pray not only for this morning, but we just offer up this entire series as we walk through Paul's letter to Timothy, and we pray that we can take it to heart. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, if you would, turn to 1 Timothy. Let's begin together, beginning in chapter 1, uh, verse 1. I'd love for you to follow along with me. If you have your Bibles, please uh, look at those. I'll have it on the screen, but I'd uh, love for you to follow along. He begins in verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy. My true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. First Timothy, Second Timothy, the letter to Titus, all of those collectively are what are known as the pastoral epistles. They're all written by Paul, and they all represent some of his final words towards the end of his ministry, not long before he was martyred for his faith in Christ. And I think the two letters that he writes to Timothy have a particular importance because of the very special connection these two men had for each other. We see that in verse 2 where Paul identifies Timothy as his true child in the faith. See, Timothy is a, a young man that Paul has mentored through most of his ministry life. In fact, six of Paul's letters include Timothy in the salutation. 
Not only that, we also know that Timothy was personally involved in planting the churches in Philippi, in Corinth, in Thessalonica, and in Berea. Even in Paul's final letter, just probably weeks before he would have been killed, he writes a letter and asks of all people, Timothy, to come be by his side. Their partnership was special and unique, which is likely the reason that Paul gives Timothy such an important assignment. You see, Paul spent more time at the church in Ephesus than he did really anywhere else during his ministry life. He personally pastored the church at Ephesus for almost three years. So he knew these people well, and he cared for them deeply. But we also know that it wasn't easy. Because even as Paul began to establish this church in Ephesus, he was immediately opposed, especially by the Jews who discredited his message altogether. So Paul turned to the Gentiles, and they became kind of the nucleus of this early church in Ephesus. But even as Paul's ministry continued to grow, it seemed that the hostility towards him did as well. To the point that he was literally run out of town by people who were intent to take his life. Paul returned several years later, as we see here, and leaves Timothy to put things in order. Because apparently, Paul's prophetic words that he spoke to those elders in Miletus have actually come to pass. He says in verse 3, I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. These are the false teachers. The, the savage wolves that have infiltrated and arisen from within the church. And even though Paul doesn't give any specific names, at least not here, there seems to be some evidence that they know exactly who he's talking about. Because it's very possible that some of these false teachers were known leaders from within this church body, just as he warned them back in Miletus. Which tells us that, that no one is immune to deception. After all, just think of all the compromise that has taken place within the Christian church in just the last 10 years. Prominent Christian leaders have been discredited because of sexual immorality. Many have completely abandoned denouncing the Christian faith altogether. Others have harmed their church congregation through authoritarian leadership. Even now, there is a growing movement of progressive Christianity that is marked by reinterpreting Scripture in order to comply with social norms. And make no mistake, these are false teachers who have infiltrated the church. So don't think for a moment that Paul's concerns 
are a thing of the past. They are just as alive and well, if not more so, right now today. In verse 4, Paul describes these strange doctrines as myths and endless genealogies which give rise to speculation. This idea of speculation means that these are discussions that end up in arguments. (laughs) They create controversy because they have no definable answer. Somehow suggesting, I think, that, that salvation is more of an achievement than a gift from God. Something that you can inherit. I think that's where the the genealogy piece comes in. And then secured by the law, as we will soon see. But any message, any message spoken by any preacher that does not focus on the grace of God through faith in Christ alone is a false gospel. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, Verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting to one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which, here it is, is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Because the Christian faith is not based on achievement. It's based on surrender. (laughs) It's realizing that, listen, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and we are made alive only through faith in Christ alone. False teachers were distorting the message of truth, creating division and disunity through their compromise. Look at how he continues in verse 5. He says, but Timothy... The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Now, here's a section in this passage where I think Paul gives us kind of a, a litmus test of determining what is false teaching. And he begins by reminding Timothy the goal of Christ-centered teaching. And this is really important, so just don't miss this. He says in verse 5, the goal of our teaching is love. Isn't that simple? The goal of our teaching is is love. That's the heart of the gospel message, which is why you see it embedded within the vision statement of this little church on 66th and Indiana here in Lubbock, Texas, where we believe that we are a gospel-centered family that worships God. And where worship, as we've been talking about, is an expression of our loving affection for the Lord. We do so by worshiping God, by loving people, and by making disciples, which is, in effect, sharing Christ's love with those around us. Jesus highlights this same priority when he was asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? You remember his answer in Matthew chapter 22 when he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. 
This is the foremost commandment. The second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Jesus is trying to help us understand that true discipleship can be driven down to really two basic principles. Love God, love people. It's that simple. Love has to be the central aspect of who we are in what we do. It's why Jesus will go on to tell his disciples in John chapter 13 verse 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if if you have love for one another. So do you see the significance of this attribute? Which is why Paul goes on to to unpack what that means when he says in verse 5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. This speaks to the heart that is unstained by selfish motives. So instead of teaching from a place of superiority, somebody who's got it all figured out, they're teaching because they recognize their own need for the gospel they're proclaiming. In other words, they're not teaching anything that they don't need to be reminded of themselves, to which I say, amen. They recognize their own need for God's grace and forgiveness, which is why they have a clear conscience, not because they're absent of any kind of sin. It's because they recognize from whom they have been forgiven their sins. They are relying on the gospel truths they are faithfully proclaiming. They have a sincere faith through a saving work of Jesus Christ. They hold true to that passage in Ephesians that reminds us that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace, which have been lavished upon us. They are teaching others out of the overflow of what they have received themselves. Which I want you to notice is fundamentally different than what you see with the false teachers because Paul will now make that contrast. He says that they've strayed from conversations that ultimately lead to Christ and instead have engaged in fruitless discussions. Stirring up debates that create divisions, discussions that end up in arguments because their ultimate goal is to be right. Paul says they want to be teachers. I think that's an interesting phrase. They want to be teachers. He didn't say they are. He says they want to be teachers. And I think it's because they want to have influence. They want to have authority over people's lives in that role. Paul says they make confident assertions, but they have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. Making dogmatic claims and expecting legalistic compliance. I've always felt personally that the more dogmatic a person is, the more uncertain they are of the things that they're proclaiming. Do you see the contrast in these two groups where where one is motivated by this attribute of love? The other is driven by pride? 
Paul's giving us a, a litmus test of true gospel teaching. He, he's saying that the character of the teacher will validate the content of their teaching. The people who preach the gospel best are the ones who need the gospel most. And just think about all the, the examples of false teaching that we see in our world today. How many times have we seen moral compromise lead to doctrinal decline? Changing biblical truths to, to meet social norms. That's false teaching. That's what Paul is pointing to. These are the selfish motives that always lead to corrupt teaching. That's why he will go on and tell Timothy later on in chapter 4, verse 16, pay attention to yourself. Notice he begins, hey, listen, don't lose sight of the fact that you need everything that you're teaching just as much as the people you're teaching to. So pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Look at how he continues in verse 8. He says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. For those who kill their fathers and mothers for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and, and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Here Paul originally it leads us to this idea that their strange doctrines ultimately come from a misuse of the Old Testament law. And yet Paul wants to be clear right up front that God designed the law to be good. But only when it's used the right way. The implication being they, the false teachers, are not using it the right way. Remember, they're making confident assertions about things they don't really completely understand. Because Paul explains in verse 9, the law is not made for the righteous person. This is important for us. See, it, it's not a checklist to somehow justify ourselves or, or prove our righteousness. Because instead of affirming our righteousness, the law is designed to reveal our sin. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3, but in those sacrifices, which, by the way, are outlined within the law, there is a reminder of sins year after year. But that's not what the false teachers were saying. They were promoting a legalistic view of the law, a view that turns from what Christ has done to some idea of what we must do. I think probably often driven by guilt and shame. <laughs> as, as I've told my discipleship group before, they're shooting all over people. You should do this. You should do that. You should do this. You should do that. As if there's some kind of list of requirements that qualifies you to be accepted in the eyes of God. And as we all know, that false teaching still exists today. But Paul says it's simply not true. 
The law is never, ever intended to lead to salvation. The law was designed to validate our need for salvation. And Paul then identifies the, the way the law condemns sinful behaviors suggesting that the law actually applies to those who do not believe the law actually applies to them. These are the lawless and rebellious who refuse any kind of authority outside of themselves. They want to do what is right in their own eyes. These are sinners who are unwilling to surrender. Willfully living outside of the boundaries of God's design. Justifying their decisions based on personal preferences and self-serving opinions. Manipulating people and situations for selfish gain. And, and what they don't understand, and this is important for us to understand as well. The law of God is actually a great mercy of God. It protects us from being deceived by identifying the sin that leads to spiritual death, which is an eternal separation from a life-giving relationship with God. In his teaching, even Paul himself explains how the law was a beautiful mercy from God. In Romans chapter 7, verse 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would have not come to know sin except through the law. For I would have not known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. I think what Paul is trying to tell us here is that apart from the law, we think we're just fine. We're alive and well, but the law actually helps us see and reveals clearly that we are actually dead in our trespasses and sin. Only then do we see our desperate need for a Savior. Do you see the mercy? So Paul tells Timothy in verse 11, preach the glorious good news of the gospel. Because that's why Jesus came, to save a wretch like me. He came to, to rescue us from the domain of darkness and, and deception. And not just to make us better people. Okay, don't miss this. He didn't come just to make us better. He came to make us new. A new creation in Christ. Old things gone. Behold, new things have come. Like Will shared with us last week in his sermon, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the part I don't want you to miss. And such were some of you. But here's the good news of the gospel. You were washed. You were sanctified. 
you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That, my friends, is the glorious good news of the gospel. He came to make us new. And that's the message that that Paul is urging Timothy to preach. And so, in closing, let me make a couple of observations that I think are really, really important for us to grasp as we begin this series together. Because the Bible makes it very clear that the influence of the false teachers was consistent within the life of the Ephesian church. We've already kind of seen this play out. We know and recognize and witness the fact that they were there when the church was originally established with Paul, right? We know that there was a concern when Paul met later with the elders in Miletus. And now we know that is a present reality with which Timothy has been asked to address. So it's been an ongoing issue, but it's not the last time it was mentioned. In fact, if you look at what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, listen closely to what he says. It says, The angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, and that's describing Jesus, by the way. So Jesus says this to the church in Ephesus. I know your deeds, your toil and perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they're not. And you found them to be false. Again, these are false teachers. And you have perseverance and endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. And this is good news. So even though the, the pressure has been unrelenting within the Ephesian church, they have been faithful to uphold the truth. They have not grown weary. And Jesus commends them for enduring for his name's sake. But then he continues in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Repent. Do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. This is so interesting, isn't it? Because do you remember what Paul told Timothy the goal of their teaching should be? Let me remind you again in verse 5. He says very clearly to young Timothy, the goal of our instruction is love. But Jesus is saying in Revelation, that's the part that they are missing. Instead of love. I think they've become knowledge-driven in order to be doctrinally sound. Their goal was to get it right when the priority should have been do it with love. A love for God, a love for one another. I think even in fact, and maybe this is the part they were missing most, a love for even the ones they opposed. Because even good doctrine in the absence of love is just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And here, my friends, don't miss this, is the absolute scariest thing of all. Jesus said that if they don't return, 
repent and return to that loving affection for God, for others, for even their enemies, he says very clearly that he will remove their lampstand from them. And in the book of Revelation, the lampstand represents the church. So Jesus is basically saying, a church without love is no church at all. It does not bear my name. So this must be a priority for you and I as well. But having said that, I want you to appreciate how quickly things can change. Because the church of Ephes- at Ephesus, if you think about this, it had every reason to succeed, right? I mean, it was established by the apostle Paul. Who, who received his instruction directly from the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So they were being fed some incredible truth. And yet, and yet, it took less than 10 years for false teachers to infiltrate the church. And I want to tell you this morning, if we don't stay on guard, it will take far less than that for us. Paul will tell Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. And I would say the very same thing to us. And so with that, let me offer one final caution. And I know I'm going to step on some toes because I stepped on my own when I thought through this. With all the false teachers that we know exist today, and they, they operate under this umbrella of Christianity, Let's be careful with how much Christian content we consume. And listen, like I said, I'm preaching to myself on this one because there is no shortage of books that we can read, podcasts we can listen to, sermons we can download, conferences we can attend. And look, there's some really good things that are out there, but don't miss this. None of them. None of them are as important or impactful as sitting in silence with God's word. Reflecting on God's truth. Inviting God's spirit to to speak in your life and then living that out faithfully in a loving community. There is no substitute. That's my friends, how we are conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, who is, in fact, not just the model, but the incarnation of love. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. Father, thank you for the relevance of your word, speaking so clearly to very relevant issues in our lives today. May we not be deceived in thinking that we are somehow immune to the influence of false teaching that has infiltrated the world today. But instead, may we be wise. May we be intentional. May we be committed to the truth of your word in the context of a loving community. For you, for for one another, and even for those 
who might be considered our enemies. May we never lose our first love. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. I don't know how you do it because half of this church can be filled and it sounds like we've got twice the size of the number of people in here. Just thank you for blessing me with your worship this morning. It was a gift. I want to encourage us as we walk through this series together. I kind of take it personally because if there's anybody I relate to in Scripture, I feel like I'm a lot like Timothy, at least in his weaknesses. It seems that he was a bit timid and fearful, maybe even doubtful of the influence that he has in the lives of other people, as do I. And yet, God encourages him to be faithful, as he does with all of us. I expect that as we go through this series together, as has been the case in my own heart, that there will be repeated places of conviction. And and when that time comes, would you consider the possibility that in those moments, like we talk about with the law, that that's actually the mercy of God speaking into your life to invite you to a deeper place of knowing him. And so let's just have that perspective as we walk through this together. Does that sound good? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for these faithful saints who showed up here on a snowy day And Lord, thanks for snow. I love it when you turn the rain white. It's beautiful. And only you could do something so creatively wonderful. Give everyone here safety as they travel home today. And I just pray that the truth of your word continues to resonate in their hearts. That we would be a people marked by a deep and abiding love, most importantly for you. And then out of that, it would overflow into our love for one another. And then out of that would overflow into the lives of those around us in the world. Lord, help us to be faithful. May we never lose our first love. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.